But we asked students what's the purpose of college. And after they gave us an answer, we gave them a multiple choice. Uh, they were things like uh, you know, to learn, live independently, to be exposed to different points of view. Um, and one of them was to get a job. And probably half of people said the purpose of job of college is to get a job. And then we said, well, what happens if after three years, the job disappears? I don't think we had three students who'd ever thought about that. And anyone who has any distance at all from this, anyone who reads the magazines or newspapers knows the job market is changing totally. AI, computer science, uh, um, climate change, those are all going to make the job market extremely volatile. And so the notion that somehow you're going to college and then you get the job, you can go home free is nonsense. Everyone, and welcome to this new episode of An Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. I've been so looking forward to today's conversation with Howard Gardner and Wendy Fishman. Howard Gardner is the Hobbes Research Professor of Cognition and Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He has studied and written extensively about intelligence, creativity, leadership, and professional ethics, and he is Senior Director of Prague. Project Zero and co-founder of The Good Project. And I have to just say, I first learned of Howard in an EdSight course that I took many, many years ago when we were introduced to the theory of multiple intelligences that he developed. And he's perhaps best known in education for his work in this area, is a prolific author with many books and articles bearing his name. Wendy Fishman joined Project Zero at the Harvard Graduate School of Education in 1995 and as a project director she has studied the meaning of education and work in the lives of young children adolescents and novice professionals she's the lead author of making good how young people cope with moral dilemmas at work and is co-author with howard of the book we're going to be discussing on today's episode So with that, Howard and Wendy, I am so pleased to welcome you to our Ingenious You community. Thank you for having us. So I'd like to start by asking you to give us a brief high-level overview about the study which informs your new book. The name of the book, title of the book is The Real World of College, What Higher Education Is and What It Can Be, MIT Press. Where does the idea for the study originate? How did you conduct the study? with whom, where, over what time period, and what were you hoping to learn at the outset? Sure, well, I will start. Um, we've been conducting research on the development of young people, how they understand their work and their own educational experiences um, at our research center, which is Project Zero at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And through our earlier research, we had begun to talk with college students on various campuses about how they understood the purpose of college, what they wanted to get out of it, how it might prepare them to be future workers um, and citizens of the world. And we were struck by how many of them had never thought about the purpose of college. They had never really thought about what they wanted to get out of it other than a degree to get a job. So we began a large scale project to delve into people's views about college and specifically um, higher education that is non-vocational. So what we might consider and say liberal arts and sciences, although we try not to use that term because we, one of our first learnings is how many people um, misinterpreted or didn't understand that word. 
So we wanted to collect rigorous data about people's perspectives. And at the time we started the project, there were lots of books about higher education, but they were mostly based on opinion or the books just focused on one college or one type of college. And we wanted to collect perspectives across many stakeholders and disparate colleges and universities in higher education. So we launched a study in which we investigated 2000 people across 10 disparate schools in the United States. We interviewed students, which made up half of the 2000, so 500 first year students and 500 graduating students. We also interviewed faculty and administrators, parents, trustees, young alums, and job recruiters. And we did so at institutions that were in different categories of selectivity, um, residential schools and non-residential schools, state schools and private campuses. We conducted one-on-one -on -one interviews with every person because we sought to understand the perspectives of the people in it and living in it and working in it every day. We spent more than five years collecting data. We visited the campuses multiple times. We met faculty and administrators in their office. We met students in the campus centers and cafeterias. We went for lots of walks. We worked out in the gyms. We went on admissions tours and information sessions, uh, much like parents would. And then we spent about two years analyzing the data. Thank you. That's a really good, good overview uh, and introduction. Uh, you know, when you started the study, what, what was on your mind? Were there some things you were hoping to learn? I think what we were really hoping to learn was what people thought about the purpose of college, mm -hmm. why were they were going and what they wanted to get out of it. Um, and we wanted to understand the different views about that topic. A study like this has not been conducted in, in our time, one at least that is qualitative, um, which is fairly exploratory. We didn't set out with a particular agenda. We wanted to understand the direction uh, that people wanted to take our very open-ended questions. We asked questions um, that were very straightforward, like what are your goals? for college and what do you see as the larger purpose of higher education, but then we asked lots of creative or out of the box questions so that we could avoid or try to avoid more canned answers. So we asked questions like if you could give one book to a graduating senior, what, what book would that be? Or if you were the czar of the college experience, what um, three changes would you want to make? Um, and so we wanted to, to try to understand how people thought about the college experience and what they thought students should get out of it. Yeah, no, it's a very ambitious study and what a, what a fun process it must have been to, to visit all those campuses and meet, meet so many different constituencies related to, to each one. Now, as you said, the, the study is a little different, maybe very different from studies that have been done previously. As you both know, there've been many studies focused on understanding the college experience. You have noted a few things that make your study different. Is there anything else that you would mention that, that really makes the work that you have done here unique and uh, particularly valuable? Well, I'll, I'll just reemphasize a few points and then Howard, if you wanna, if I've forgotten anything, please pipe in. But I think, you know, as I just mentioned, the qualitative nature rather than the survey based, mm -hmm. um, the range of constituencies. So I think there are not many studies that touch on the range of constituencies. Um, 
and also the range of schools. So usually studies are based on one particular school or um, category of schools, like highly selective schools. Mm -hmm. But we worked really hard to find 10 schools that were as representative as possible of the thousands of colleges and universities that exist in the United States. And then um, the way that we conducted our analysis of the data was rigorous. As I mentioned, it took us over two years and we're still analyzing data. And that's because we coded and shadow coded and blind scored as well, every word of every transcript. Mm -hmm. So we, we not only looked holistically across interviews, but we were able to compare particular responses to questions and also looked at the text analysis of particular words and phrases. Yeah, I would just add that um, we had 18 funders that took a lot of effort to find them and almost all asked, what are your hypotheses? And we said, we don't have hypotheses. We have things we're curious about, but we want to see what comes up. And uh, indeed, some of the major findings were things we would never have thought of before. I will say that when we finally came to writing it up, some of our prejudices may have come out, but we really saw ourselves as a, as a blank slate. And therefore, we didn't ask questions which, I mean, just to use one example, mental health wasn't even on our mind when we started the study in 2012. It loomed as a huge issue. On the other hand, nowadays you think that campuses are loaded with people fighting about free speech and about uh, uh, judgments that people are making. This hardly came up. It might come up somewhat more now, but let me put it this way. If you read only the New York Times, only the Fox News, you watch only Fox News, you're not gonna know what's actually going on in colleges. We probably know more about what's going on at a representative group of American schools which don't which aren't vocational we didn't study journalism schools right. or pharmacy schools we studied schools which use the term liberal arts and uh, we just know what's going on there and uh, people want to know what's going on or who want to know what we think should go on they should listen to the rest of the podcast and go out and read the book exactly yes no that's where i think you have really done uh, a, a wonderful service and i hope that the college presidents in this country of the liberal arts institutions all have your book on their bedside table, or maybe they'll get it after, so. after hearing, hearing you speak. So um, tell us about uh, your findings. The most, and I know that there are a number of themes that really serve as a framework uh, for the book. Uh, can you tell us about some of the most significant themes that emerged? Sure. Uh, I think the most significant is that students, and in many cases, their parents, miss the point of college and the purpose of higher education. We find that students approach college with a transactional mental model rather than an exploratory or transformational mental model, which has some negative consequences. So let me just take a minute to explain. Um, after we conducted our interviews and we began to analyze our data, we discerned four different mental models. We don't ask people to self-identify what their mental models are. We coded and categorized the mental models based on an entire interview. So um, the first is an inertial mental model, the belief that college is just the next step after high school. And then the transactional mental model, which nearly half of the students expressed, which is this understanding that college is a way to earn degrees, build resumes, get into graduate school, network with others that will be helpful for, for a job. Um, and then 
there's an exploratory mental model, which is that college is an opportunity to investigate lots of new fields and disciplines and marinate in new ideas. And the transformational mental model that the purpose of college is to reflect about who you are as a person and to question your own beliefs and values and how you might want to change and grow. And unfortunately, the students who express this transactional mental model, which are half of our students across the 10 different schools, we find a significant relationship or correlation with what they actually get out of college. And that's, mm -hmm. that's what we call head cap, higher education capital. So in just this question, I introduced two concepts that we discuss in our book, but basically we find that students with a transformational mental model are more likely to develop intellectual capacities, while students with a transactional mental model are more likely to develop less um, or lower intellectual capacities. We also find that this transactional mental model leads to a lot of mental health problems, which Howard alluded to earlier on campus and this um, stress about being perfect and, and developing the perfect profile as a result of college. And so we really find that half of these students are missing the point. Let me, let me add that, um, uh, you know, many people think the point of college is to get a job. Um, and a priori, there's nothing wrong with that. But then the question is, why do we have faculty in different fields? Why do we have research laboratories? Why do we have libraries? Why do we have museums? Um, how do we judge who the faculty are and so on, and there's a giant mismatch. Uh, I, I think Wendy alluded to this. Um, faculty administration think about college entirely differently from the other constituencies. And you might want to say, well, it's the parents and the students and the trustees and the um, uh, alums who have it right and the faculty have it wrong. Uh, but then you'd have to just completely change uh, what colleges and universities are doing altogether if you wanted to make people happy. The society is what would suffer. Because if we don't have society, if we don't have a society with which people are broadly educated uh, can think in a sophisticated way about different topics and uh, be able to engage in debate and argument and uh, listen fairly to others and you know, try to persuade them without guns, so to speak. Um, a society where, as Wendy said, people talk about we rather than I, uh, then you need to have higher education. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and to anticipate one of your questions, a reason that there's a lot of interest in this book uh, abroad is because people in other countries admire American higher education, but they're admiring, if I can be sort of concrete about it, you know, what Amherst or the University of California was doing 25 years ago, and those obviously stand for hundreds of schools. Uh, if they knew what was going on now, they wouldn't see the answers lie here anymore. So our book has a wake-up call to mm -hmm. having really lost the sense of why we have these institutions with educated people trying to expand the minds of our future citizens and leaders. Wendy, I want to go back to the, the themes that you uh, you spoke about. Now, those, those themes were commonalities, right, across all of the institutions that you studied. Were there any other commonalities that emerged? That you want to that you want to mention prevalence of mental health issues yeah. and alienation issues or lack of belonging were also commonalities across institutions. 
Um, and I think and this gets into surprises, but another commonality across institutions is that students across these 10 schools are much more similar than they are different. And this is not only in their transactional mental models, but also in their words and how they talk about what they need and what they want. Um, so we actually looked at the 100 top words that students use across campuses. And while some of the words might not surprise you like courses or books or teacher or professor, other words did surprise us. And these were words that came up across all students at schools, words like mom and help. And interestingly, when we looked at the context for the word help, it's not help that they were offering to other people and to their friends, but it was help that they felt they needed. Mm -hmm. um, so they were very, as Howard said, I focused rather than we focused. And this gives some insight into their own mental health and, and alienation uh, that they expressed in the interviews. And those, so those were common across all, all students at schools. Wendy, did you want to say something about high school signaling? Because um, I think you know something about that from your own children. But also, um, I think it complicates the jobs of higher job of higher education, what students are learning in high school or not learning in high school. Yeah, sure. So as Howard said, I do have four kids. Three have already gone through high school, and one is going through high school. Um, but also we heard a lot about high school from the students themselves, especially the first year students, 500 of these students who had just graduated and were embarking on the college experience. And it's really clear that high school um, is sending, unfortunately, many of the wrong messages to students. And so while we're trying to, in our book and, and talking with you, sort of address and fix the sector of higher education, we also think that some of these problems are systemic and begin at very early ages. And you know, just to mention a couple of the issues, high school really has, seems that it, it has become um, not preparing students for college, but getting them into college. And so most of the focus of conversation about college among, with parents or with college advisors is about GPA and statistics and test scores and likelihood of getting in and options. And while all that is probably necessary, it really just sends the message to students that that's the most important thing. Um, and so students you know, treat that as such. And when they go into college, it's sort of hard to let go of those messages. And it's very rare for anyone in high school or even I think for parents, because this didn't even happen in our family before we began the study, to just ask students, why do you want to go to college? What do you want to get out of it? What kind of experience do you want to have? What is higher education for? I think mm -hmm. students are just so used to thinking that this is a, um, you know, the next step and this is what I ought to do. And this is the, the place where I go then to get a job, move on to the next phase to succeed at this and to move on. And don't often think about what college is really for. Um, and then just to bring that one more level, do students ever learn in high school what the term liberal arts and sciences are and how useful that kind of education is? I think most students are really uh, funneled into selective programs that might lead to better jobs rather than college counselors and parents talking with students about what a liberal arts and sciences curriculum has to offer. 
And you oh. actually heard that in your interviews, that the funneling, if I re if I recall. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Howard, Howard, go ahead. Um, yeah, in fact, even before the study, we wrote a book called, we wrote an article called The Funnel Effect, which annoyed our bosses at Harvard, because we found that in the junior year, if a, if a student is saying, oh, I'm studying the arts or I'm studying philosophy, classmates or the classmates' parents are saying, why, why are you doing that? Why aren't you going to work for Goldman Sachs for the summer and getting a free house and car uh, wherever you are? So there's a lot, there's a lot of pressure within college to, uh, to funnel kids into a few professions. But we asked students what's the purpose of college and after they gave us an answer, we gave them a multiple choice. And Wendy can probably remember the multiple choices. Uh, they were things like uh, you know, to learn, live independently, to be exposed to different points of view. Um, and one of them was to get a job. And probably half of people said the purpose of job of college is to get a job. And then we said, well, what happens if after three years, the job disappears? I don't think we had three students who'd ever thought about that. And anyone who has any distance at all from this, anyone who reads the magazines or newspapers knows the job market is changing totally. AI, computer science, uh, um, climate change, uh, the form of garden we have, those are all going to make the job market extremely volatile. And so the notion that somehow you're going to college and then you get the job, you can, you can go home free is nonsense. I want to go back to Howard, you were, uh, you were talking about the differences in how some of the various constituencies look at the college experience. You talked about faculty versus alums, alumni. Um, I'm curious if there were any other differences that you want to talk about. I'm, I'm wondering specifically about presidents and uh, how tuned in the presidents are in terms of what's, what's actually happening on campuses versus how students are experiencing things. Faculty administrators, which include presidents, um, do recognize that it's not simply job preparation, that it is a chance to expand your mind. When we talk about higher education capital, it's pretty simple. It's and to describe, it's can you pay attention? Can you analyze? Can you uh, reflect? Can you connect and synthesize? Can you communicate? And interestingly, um, this is actually what, what the job recruiters told us. They're looking for this kind of higher, higher education capital. Uh, and so the, the faculty administrators are much closer to what we see as the real legitimate purpose of college than parents, uh, students, alums, and even trustees who are not with the faculty administration, they're more with, 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 with the parents um, and, and with the students. On the presidents, um, the presidents all agreed to talk, um, but I have to say in candor that uh, I don't think I got any answer which a journalist off the street wouldn't have gotten. Um, nowadays, college presidency is an enormously difficult job. Uh, if you ever peek at the Chronicle of Higher Education, it's one misery story of an <laughs> after another. And yeah. I have to, to admire those people who go into college presidency for idealistic purposes. You know, students are just so focused on themselves. I think even though they might know their president's name, they don't really know what a president does, nor do they know what a provost or dean does. So they have very little interaction or understanding of these administrative roles. And often they find them even more confusing, like they don't even know who to go to for what. Um, but what was quite amazing is how the 
the commonalities between students and the off-campus adults. So the students and the parents and even the trustees, even though students don't know what a trustee does either, they have they share more views um, than students do with their faculty and administrators. So if you if you looked at our 800 plus slide deck, which shows all of our data in bar graphs, you would be amazed to see that students and their off-campus adults are always at the same high levels or low levels or medium levels of everything. Um, and totally off the chart is faculty and administrators, almost like they live on their own island. In an era of heightened disruption and revolutionary changes, many education experts, educators, and families are calling for change in our pre-K through grade 12 schools. At Bay Path University, we are meeting this need by teaching our doctoral students how to reimagine organizations, make tough decisions, and re-examine traditional ways of doing business. Our EDD Transformative School Leadership Program is designed for pre-K through grade 12 educators related professionals and school and district leaders who want to advance in their career to many senior level leadership positions and or seek faculty positions to prepare the next generation of school leaders and educators. Delivered in a completely online format with one immersive weekend workshop per year held on Bay Path's Longmeadow campus, the 56 credit program provides flexibility along with access to a dynamic online community of peers and faculty. There is a 30 credit all but dissertation program completion option. And for those who hold an EDS degree or CAG certificate, a 36 credit completion program option is available. If you have a true passion for ensuring quality education for all learners, find it exciting to navigate change and initiate transformation in our pre-K through grade 12 schools, please visit our website at baypath.edu edd for more information about this exciting program and joining our fall cohort. I'd like to start off this second uh, part of our interview by asking for your impression about something. As I think about the, uh, the, the description you are painting of today's college students, at least those students that you, you interviewed, uh, I'm, I'm struck by how different this picture looks than I think what we typically think about in terms of who college students are, at least who they were um, 5, 10, 20 years ago. Um, what, what is your sense about this? I think that's absolutely true. I think they're in, in a lot of contact, probably that they're also is helped by the cell phones sure uh, but you know as i said the word mom came up <laughs> yes. as one of the 100 most frequent words but also when we asked questions like when something happens on campus um and you need a quote-unquote moral compass who do you turn to for advice the questions the responses were either my parents or the mental health counselor so again they're yeah. not they're not always knowing who to look for on campus, what these important administrators are that schools are really, you know, um, searching high and low for and sinking a lot of resources into these centers and these people. The students aren't understanding 
They're still mm -hmm. turning to their parents or the mental health counselor. Your question is a very good one. Um, pulling a new rabbit out of the hat, rather than saying, uh, what, did we, what were we doing better 20, 30 years ago is an important question. And one thing which we can talk about as much as you want, and this was a huge surprise to me, and I think to Wendy as well, is how important it is for an institute of higher education to have a mission. Um, and it can be a religious mission, it can be a military mission, it can be a vocational mission. We didn't study vocational schools, but that's particularly fine. It can be a civic mission, um, but this characterizes almost none of the non-mission, uh, mission, historically mission campuses. Instead, you have uh, mission spread gone wild, missionitis, projectitis. You look at any website, you go on any college tour, um, you, know, you listen to any speech being given by the leaders to a, um, a broad audience, and there's nothing that colleges don't claim that they're doing. And in any business, this will be a joke. I mean, every business book says, know what you're doing and do that. And then if you want to add something, you have to see if it works. But we have a mission sprawl now, and we have diagrams of this in the book, which is just incredible. But if you are historically X school, and that's what you say you're doing, and that's what the leaders, including the president, talks about, then you're much less likely to have what uh, sociologists would call an, an anomic place, a place of honor me, where nobody really knows quite why it's there. And so they say, well, it must be to get the next thing, which is a job. So, and that's what takes it back to your original, um, in terms of why that's a problem for students. It, it, it impacts the way they view the experience and the meaning they draw from the college experience. Sure. That's, yeah. I mean, Wendy um, and I talk a lot about onboarding. You know, yeah. no school has been dumb enough to hire me to be a president and it'd be a bit late. But, you know, I'm a president, you have the, the letter in which you apply is the first response you get from the school, and then the letter where hopefully you admit it. And then what happens the first day or the week before is you really talk about what you're there for. And, you know, nobody says you shouldn't get a job. Nobody says you shouldn't get a job. But, you know, in a way, I would love to be able to ask students the following question. If you could go to harvard.org or google.harvard.edu or google.edu or goldman sachs.edu, which you would go to. And I bet a lot of students would rather go to google.edu or goldman.edu, fine. But that's not what a place like Harvard does. That's not why we go over the faculty's um, research and thinking uh, with a fine tooth comb, fine tooth comb, and we look at the, their service, we look at their, um, uh, um, you know, their, their student ratings. You know, we, we take it as seriously as if you're, you know, you're picking a, 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 more seriously than if you're picking a U.S. president. <laughs> but we wouldn't need that if it was just getting, if it was just getting to go to get a job in Wall Street or in Silicon Valley. Then we can chuck yeah. colleges altogether. That's actually a great question to add for the application process, so <laughs> as well. So um, from all the interviews you did, and you did a lot of interviews, are there any, is, is there one or two that have stuck with you that were really uh, compelling? That's Probably more than that, but maybe there's one you can talk about. There, that's such a good question. There, there are too many to talk about. I'll talk about one category of interviews and then one particular interview. And then Howard, if you have anything. 
I think for me, the some of the most inspiring interviews and the biggest surprises were from interviews that we conducted with the students at some of the less selective colleges um, that talked about this and expressed this transactional mental model, but did so for transformational purposes with the goal to really be transformed and to change the course of their life and their family's life, um, and very genuinely wanted an education. So I think while so many people assume that students who go to some of the less selective schools, whether they're first gen or they go to a community college, um, that they're focused on the job and really are in even those schools that are non-residential and they're just in and out and want to get through the the interviews in which they express larger purposes for for being there um, and getting a degree were so inspirational and also um, I shouldn't use the word surprising but just um, really were in stark contrast to some of the students at the higher selectivity schools that were there for purely transactional reasons to go to Goldman Sachs and Google and all these other places without even thinking about what an education has to offer. So for me, that category was, was um, you know, really stuck out to me. Um, and then one particular interview that stands out to me, and this gets to the, the high school um, problem that we just were talking about was this one student, and I, I did interview her, um, she was at home after graduating college. Um, and at the beginning of the interview, what she talked about herself as a very ideal high school student. She had a near perfect grade point average, grade GPA. She walked into school with 11 AP courses. And you can imagine when I interviewed her and I had two kids looking at college at the same time, I was thinking 11 APs, that's a lot. Um, she was in the National Honor Society. Um, very, you know, described herself as um, getting in almost everywhere, but deciding to go to her state university for financial and cost reasons. And after her experience, she reflected on it and she was so disappointed with it and confused. She had been dropped from the honors program at her school in the first year because she couldn't maintain the required grade point average. She had been rejected from medical school. She resented the general um, education classes she had to take. Um, she talked about mental health problems, only meeting an advisor twice in school. And I was, uh, not to be so negative, but I it stands out to me because I remember at that moment when I um, hung up from, I think it was FaceTime, we didn't use Zoom in, the, in these interviews. I remember thinking, what is happening here? Like this interview all in one hour sort of was the big problem of like, how could this very promising college student have been so let down and disappointed by the experience? So um, it, I think in many ways that that one interview um, caused me, my mind to go in so many different directions about how we can help the sector, but also these students and you know try to figure out what they want to get out of college before they even start so this doesn't happen. What Winnie is telling you is this was a transformative experience for her, which exactly. shows that even researchers in midlife can have transformative experiences. And it's very sad when schools go out of their way just to please the customer and not to uh, nudge people to, to, to get off of their uh, initial goals and their long-term attitudes. And, and you know, being exploratory 
transformatory or transformational doesn't mean you change your, your ideals and your values, but you test them. So let, let me go back to the title of your book, which again, the real world of college, what higher education is and what it can be. The title implies that you have some ideas about what higher education can and should be. I think that's obvious from our conversation thus far. So I, I wanna turn the table on you. I know this was one of your questions um, and ask you if you were appointed higher ed czar for the day, what changes would you make as a result of what you learned through your study? Well, I'll, I'll start, but I know Howard is, wants to jump into this question very quickly. But uh, first, I'll give a very Howard-like answer and say I'd make everyone read our book, and I'd buy the book for everybody. And if I was Lazar, I suppose I could do that. Um, but then the, the second and third, maybe, um, is something that Howard touched on earlier, which is I would force college presidents and their boards to look at the mission statement very carefully and to decide on a single mission. I believe that non-vocational institutions, that mission should be intellectual development and expanding the mind. Um, and to, to make sure that the school is working hard to convey that clear and straightforward message, that message to, to students um, right away. Um, and to to think about the ways that students are getting implicit messages, whether that's in information sessions or on the website or you know, in other kinds of publications. So as Howard talked about earlier in the book, at the end, we talk about the importance of onboard and intertwining. And so that's what I'm getting at. Um, but you know, I, as the czar, if I could, I'd also like to connect with high schools and with with parents of kids in high school, because as I said, this isn't just a, a problem for higher ed, even though I'm the czar of higher ed, I'd want to talk with the czar of secondary ed <laughs> um, and try to change or come up with a strategy or approach for changing this focus on I guess three S's, salary, status, and success, which I really think can be damaging for kids when they grow up and when they enter college. So I know that's a lot for one day of a czar, but that's what I would do. Good agenda. Howard, how about you? Okay, well, um, for one thing, uh, and this is a statement being made in 2022, I would say, stop having politicians interfere with what's going on in colleges and universities. It's calamitous, absolutely calamitous. Um, and with that, uh, I would say that people who are trustees for political reasons should not be allowed. They don't have to be people who are educators, but they need to be people who are disinterested in the sense that they don't have a political agenda because our public education system is being ruined by governors who are attaching uh, basically loyalty oaths of one sort or another to our higher education system today. Um, but um, looking within the sector, the sector is very expensive. Um, in most countries, uh, higher education is free. So the, 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 the charges are, are nominal. Uh, and uh, you know, when I went to college, uh, uh, 
the tuition was $1,500 and the decade before was $750. <laughs> um, and you know, there are reasons why it's more expensive, but uh, I mean, Derek Bach, the former president of Harvard said, if you think education is expensive, try ignorance. But um, when you know, we have million dollar contracts for football players, when coaches are making 20 times as much as faculty and 200 times as much as adjunct, uh, and when places compete on how expensive the buildings are and you know, how many uh, restaurants, I mean, there's all of this has nothing to do with higher education. And the rest of the country, rest of the world doesn't understand this at all. I mean, there's no understanding whatsoever. Now, I read a review of your book by someone who suggests that the book is elitist in its focus on liberal arts education, that the purpose of higher ed today needs to be more deeply focused on helping young people get jobs. So how do you respond to that? Well, let me jump into that. Um, we deliberately decided not to study non-vocational education. We had one control school, which is an engineering school, which claims to do liberal arts, and we think it actually does a, a reasonable job, but we said we studied liberal arts school. The issue about people, people getting jobs is then it's a question of how broad or narrow it is. I already said most people who say it's about jobs haven't even thought about what happens when the job disappears. We were thinking of some titles the other day, and we argue for a different kind of capital. So everybody's focused on capital in terms of earning, but what we're interested in is creating what we call higher education capital, which as, as Howard said earlier, is the ability to attend, analyze, reflect, connect, and communicate on issues of importance. So we like capital, but it's a very different kind of capital than most people focus on. But I, I, I think it's also important to say, um, I, I have nothing, there's nothing wrong with helping students think about jobs in college. So, um, I mean, I love my job and I couldn't, have, I've been in it for 27 years and I could never have done this job without my college education. I was an undergraduate history major and I learned how to think, how to write. I learned how to defend an argument, put things into perspective. I mean, all these things come into being a, a researcher. Um, and so I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking about um, fields that you might want to go into, exploring different disciplines that might be helpful, um, but it shouldn't be the purpose of why you go to college. So I think that in many ways, it's, it's kind of a misrepresentation that we don't care about jobs, that there's, you know, this choice between liberal arts and jobs. And I think the Olin College of Engineering, as Howard said, was a perfect example where a student said, I'm getting an undergraduate engineering degree, but with a background in liberal arts and sciences. Mm -hmm. You can you can do, you know, you can have a liberal arts and science background and it can be helpful for a job. In fact, one other example I just remembered, at the end of our book, we have a wonderful quote from Stephen Hodge, who's the president of Moderna, um, who talked about his own liberal arts and sciences um, background um, as a major, I think, in political science and uh, natural science, I can't remember. And he he talked about how important learning about different disciplines was to him in his current job as, as president. So it's not elitist. I think we just have to take a long view and think about the kind of citizens we want to cultivate and how prepared they are to solve world problems. We just have a few minutes left here. So I want to ask you, uh, for for current college students or for students that are 
Uh, you said, uh, Wendy, you've got one, you've got one left who's looking to go to college. So what advice are you giving your own child or what advice would you give to current college students about uh, how they might get more out of the college experience? Are there some tangible things they could do, they should do? Sure. Well, for me, this question really blurs the personal and the professional. Um, I mean, as a parent, I try to ask good questions rather than starting with my own opinions, because I, I know that if I say what I want, they will probably do the opposite of what I suggest. So I bit my tongue very hard when my kids looked for colleges, but I think, you know, we have a couple of insights from our study that might be helpful for prospective students and also for current students. First of all, there's so many incredible colleges and universities, thousands of them, and one can't assume that the best place to go is the most selective school you get into. It's often not the right fit for students, the most selective. And as I think Howard and I both said, in, in many ways, some of the less selective schools in our study were um, had some of the most inspiring conversations and interviews with students and faculty. Um, and you know, it's, it is the case that at some of the more highly selective campuses, students become even more transactional and um, competitive and cutthroat. So, so that would be the first, is not to necessarily focus on the selectivity. Um, but I, and I said this before, I, I think the most important piece of advice is to ask current students, because it's not too late, and prospective students, what they really want to get out of college and to really have them deeply reflect on why they're going. And even if you do this senior year, we had a wonderful intern who now works on our research team full time and she wrote a blog about um, it's not too late taking advantage of the college experience. And as a result of being on our research team one summer, she changed sort of the whole course of her year her senior year in college um, to get the most out of college. And so I think that just, it seems very simple, but just having conversations with students and asking them to re reflect on really what they wanna get out of it, why they're there um, and talking with students about that. And I, you know, just the third, which is point, which is very related to all of this is that for even for faculty and administrators, you didn't ask for advice for them, but I would just say the same thing, to talk with students. You know, it was very revealing when we asked open-ended conversations and talked with students for an hour, what we learned and how different it is from what people assume they know. We heard, heard very little about finance and um, other than when selecting a college based on finance, but very little about finance, very little about free speech, very little about sexual harassment, very little about social media. So I think talking with students about what they find challenging um, and having real one-on-one -on -one conversations is the best way to understand what students want and what they need. Boy, that's important. Howard, what advice do you have either for students or for administrators and leaders? Well, for administrators and leaders, um, I think the mission is clearly the most important thing. Yeah. Whittle down what's really most important to you, communicate it clearly from day one, and embody it. It's easy to have a good admission. I mean, I've written about this. Uh, um, Harvard's uh, motto is Veritas, which means truth. But when there was a huge cheating scandal, which made the headlines, Harvard was very quiet about it. 
that did not send a message of, of veritas around. So, I mean, the message to, uh, to, to leaders uh, is to decide what's really important and talk about it and embody it. Um, with, with young people, um, uh, you have to be careful, uh, but uh, I think for many students should not be going to college right after high school. I think it's bad all around. Uh, and uh, um, nobody listens to me in many cases, I think two or three years in the real world, so to speak, uh, it makes you much more cognizant of why you might want or need to have some more education. Uh, as Wendy says, you're carrying so much um, baggage with you from high school, but for um, uh, people who seem to be ready, I would try to get them to think about uh, college, not just as a route to the first job, which might disappear, but as a route to a better, fuller life. And not just a life for me, but a life for those I love and maybe even for those who I don't like so much, but who, you know, if they're in the middle of a, of a pandemic or a, a flood, uh, how can I be helpful to them? Let me just end with this. I wanna ask you if there's anything I did not ask you that you want your listeners to know about the book or what you're working on next, upcoming projects. Sure, I'll, I'll say two things. The first is that we, as a result of our study, we developed a survey that uh, we have a sample of it online. And if, if anyone listening to the podcast has an interest in um, understanding how some of these questions that we pursued in our research might play out in their own institution, that's available and people can, there's a link for people to email us if they want more. Um, so that's the first. And then the second is just we're excited about what we're doing now, which is actually working closely with colleges and universities um, in effort to move this needle from students from I to we. And so um, we have developed an approach, but we're also co-constructing approaches with colleges and universities throughout the country. Um, talking with students deeply about issues or situations in which they have to, to face difficult situations um, and helping them to reflect and think well about those situations. So they might not call their mom or go to the mental health counselor, but have the wherewithal to make these decisions on their own and also um, to think about consequences of these larger decisions, not just for themselves or their roommates, but also for the campus community as a whole and the wider world. We're, we're concerned about the kind of society that we live in and really wanna develop um, citizens who, who have responsibility, not just for themselves, but for, for others. If somebody wants to get involved with that, if there's a club who's listening to this, a leader, how did they contact you? And is that the next step? Good question. Yep. We, so our contact information is on our website, which is therealworldofcollege.com. And you can reach both of us there. Just this week, I heard a, um, a video uh, presentation by Jim Ryan, who used to be our boss at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, is now the president of the University of Virginia. And he said that, that Virginia, a public university, first public university, I think, um, goes back to Jefferson's time, he says the, our goal is to be great and to be good. And I said, we've never put those words together, uh, but that's actually what Wendy and I and our colleagues want to do is we want to help schools and kids be great, but also to be good. And so whatever energies I have, uh, 
are devoted toward helping to orient individuals, groups, and, uh, and institutions toward trying to do what's good. And that doesn't mean it's always, always obviously what, what's good, it's sort of clear what's bad, but uh, a lot of the curricular materials that Wendy has worked on and mentioned are efforts to help people to debate and discuss difficult issues and to learn how to approach them in the same way, how to decide what to do, because often you have to make a decision, and how to debrief afterwards and learn how to do it better. And I'm sure that higher ed cap will help with that, even as it will help with a sense of belonging and not just belonging with people who look and like thick like you, but belonging with, to, to our species. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you on behalf of higher education for the work you're doing. You're making incredibly important contributions and uh, I, we will look forward to uh, reading more and as this work continues. So I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for your time and engagement today in this conversation. Thank you for having us. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of An Ingenious You. This is Melissa Morris-Olson, your host. We are very excited about our season four conversations. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. I invite you to visit our website for the Center for Higher Education, Leadership and Innovative Practice at baypath.edu slash chelip, C-H-E-L-I-P, where you will find information about our monthly free leading edge thinking and higher education webinars, as well as our just launched YouTube channel, where you'll find full video interviews with our most highly rated conversations from previous seasons. And while on this site, you can subscribe so you don't miss out on the release of new content and upcoming webinars. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening.